Energy poverty impacts one in five people. For children, this means they don't have access to lights to read or study by after dark, limiting their opportunities. Solar Buddy is here to change that, and they're doing it with the gift of light. Solar Buddy's innovative corporate program is inspiring, fun, and educational. Through it, you'll learn about energy poverty, renewable energy, assemble your very own solar light, and pen a handwritten note. The lights and letters are then gifted to children living in energy poverty. I recently distributed Solar Buddy lights in PNG and witnessed firsthand the difference a solar light can make. Visit solarbuddy.org and join the growing community of light givers. The future is brighter with Solar Buddy. Welcome to Goodwill Hunters. Here, we'll explore the ultimate question, how to use profits for purpose. It's been said business must help solve the global challenges we face. In this podcast, we explore how. How can the private and not-for-profits work better together? What truly constitutes aid and progress? And how can we transform international development? Here, we talk with the thought leaders, the game changers, the intellectuals, and the campaigners. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and this is Goodwill Hunters. Hello, and welcome to episode 41 of Goodwill Hunters. Today on the show, we have Naomi Steer. Naomi is the founding national director of Australia for UNHCR. Naomi is a passionate advocate for refugees with a deep understanding of the issues affecting displaced people. Naomi established Australia for UNHCR in 2000 and under her leadership and with the support of Australian donors, Australia for UNHCR has become a top 10 private sector contributor to UNHCR's budget. I'm so excited to learn more about that. Naomi, thank you so much for being on the show. Okay, so I think... um, it would make sense to start at the start of UNHCR in Australia. So can you take us back to 2000 when you founded the organisation and talk about what that was like? And I should say, Rachel, the history of UNHCR in Australia um, and in relation to Australia is really significant. Uh, When UNHCR, the global organisation, was set up 50-plus years ago, Australia was very much um, behind um, this new organisation and has consistently played a sort of really important part in the executive committee, the governing body of UNHCR. And in Australia, there's been an, an office of UNHCR based in Canberra uh, for about 30 years, and that office deals with the government on uh, political issues, policy around asylum, uh, resettlement, uh, and also works a lot in our region. Um, And, you know, as you know, a a lot of issues around uh, potential displacement and climate change. So its work has always been here, but also changing. For our organisation, Australia for UNHCR, we were a relatively new initiative of um, the global organisation. And the reason why we were established and why I took up the role was at at the time, um, UNHCR, uh, most of its 
funding uh, comes from government. But uh, what a lot of people don't understand is the the UNHCR only gets 3% fixed funding from the UN, which actually means it's got to raise 97% of its funds through voluntary contributions. Um, and as I've said, most of that historically has come from governments. Um, but as political issues and geopolitical um, uh, different focuses uh, occur, the, the funding from government, you could say, has been a bit like a roller coaster. So in 2000, UNHCR took the decision to engage in private sector funding, which it hoped would give it a much more sustainable and predictable um, uh, fundraising base. Uh, and we were really one of a handful of partners around the world uh, that UNHCR helped establish, uh, specifically with the role to, to raise funds and raise awareness about the plight of refugees. Wow, I, I had no idea about the 97% fundraising. That's massive. Yeah, and, and it is massive. And, you know, of course, with 70.8 million uh, displaced people worldwide now, uh, the gap between what UNHCR is able to get through um, government funding and, and, and other sources uh, and what it needs to actually meet the needs of that 70 million displaced, uh, displaced population is huge. So can I ask out of curiosity then, why does the UN contribute 3%? Like is that a, is that a set number for a reason? It goes up and down but, of course, the, the UN is an intergovernmental body it, itself. It relies on funding from government. Its resources are, are limited. That 3% um, goes towards really the infrastructure of, of, of UNHCR. Um, and uh, it, it's traditionally um, uh, raised funds from, from, from other sources. Right. Now, you've mentioned there that government funding is is fairly inconsistent, which is something that we see across the whole not-for-profit sector. So I, I suppose what I'm interested to understand here is Australia has a fairly complex relationship with refugees. So what is the nature of the fundraising that UNHCR Australia is is doing? Is it going towards Australian, like are you involved in Australian-based issues or is there more of a global focus? Yeah, look, uh, our main focus is uh, raising support for refugees um, overseas and to fund UNHCR's humanitarian operations. And the reasons for that is that, you know, Australia, like many developed countries, is seen to have a good infrastructure and support basis for people who get refugee status here. And I think it is important to say, you know, uh, the uh, Australian um, tracks, government's track record, we would say, is mixed in a lot of ways, but it has traditionally been a, a good um, uh, funder to UNHCR. So when it pledges um, funds, it actually commits those funds and pays those funds, unlike a lot of other countries when they go to the pledging conference, they're all there very excited and, yes, they'll give millions, but it often does come th not come through. Australia is also seen as a a really important part in resettlement um, 
and takes very vulnerable cases. So that's the positive story. But of course, you know, over the last two decades, the whole issue around uh, asylum uh, seekers um, and and how that is managed has been a very big issue, not only for UNHCR, but all, all refugee advocates. But our role at Australia for UNHCR is, is principally, as I say, supporting all those millions of people who will never be resettled. I think less than 1% of the global population of displaced people actually find a place in a country like Australia or Canada or the UK or the US. So most um, displaced people spend now up to 20 years plus in exile. Um, And the role of our organisation is very much to provide not only the immediate humanitarian support that people need if they're displaced in conflict, but also increasingly the longer-term support that, that people need if they're living in protracted refugee situations. That's another amazing statistic, less than 1%. It just, it's quite incomprehensible, really. So you're core work then being that global focus. Um, Can you illustrate that for us? Is there a particular country context that you can draw on to illustrate some of the work that Australia for UNHCR is funding? We, our, our general funds that we raise, I guess you could say, go to two main areas. The first is meeting UNHCR's global humanitarian needs. And pretty much we raise a lot of funds in Australia from the private sector. Our donors are actually very generous and we would give about 90% of our funds to UNHCR and we say to them, you take these these funds, you spend it where you see the need most, provided it's in the field and in a humanitarian context. But we also, um, through consultation with UNHCR, will identify particular projects that we believe that we can add value from uh, Australia donor support. And I've got many great examples of that. One of the the very um, early projects we did was a computer and technology centre in a refugee settlement called Nakavali. Valley is about 80 kilometres from the border with the Democratic Republic of Congo. Like many settlements, it's been around for about 50 years. When I first visited it about nine years ago, there were about 50,000 refugees. Um, Now it's got over 100,000 in that very same um, settlement. It's very spread out. It's about 84 kilometres. So you've got this very big population, um, but with not very much transport or roads and very difficult for for people to sort of get across from from A to B. When we first went there, um, it only had six six schools, had no secondary school, and over 60% of the population were under 18 years old. So um, it had very dire needs and and I visited that settlement a a lot and um, they had a food shortage because food prices were very high. So, uh, you, you know, significant issues around health, significant issues around shelter. But when I would speak to the refugees who'd been there for some time, they would say, of course we need food, water, to shelter, but we also need something that adds value to our lives and gives us some hope for a future. And so I asked them what they what would be really important. And one of the things that the community said that they would really like was access to technology. 
Um, and so it was the, with that idea we ended up building a uh, computer centre. It was actually the first uh, what UNHCR would describe as a deep field project. Um, Naka Valley at that time was quite remote. We had to transport everything along a sort of just a muddy tracks. We had to build it according to the UN's um, green standards, which meant we had to um, get specially made solar panels and be brought in. It was one of those projects that things did go wrong before they went very right. When we brought the solar panels in, we put them on the roof and the roof collapsed. Um, so we had to build the computer centre again and come up with new solar panels that that um, were, were, were more suitable. When we all set it up, we ended up, ended up with 45 comp computer terminals and a um, internet cafe. Um, and over the years, it's it's really been a wonderful project. It's self-sustaining. Refugees pay about 50 cents to use the internet, access to the internet. Um, that money is then used to pay the salary of the computer trainers who are all refugees themselves. Uh, and many of those people over the the seven years, eight years that we've been running it have gone on to get jobs in other places in Uganda as um, computer experts. Um, and it also had all these other benefits because people for the very first time had access to the internet. They were able to trace family members. There's a fantastic site called Refugees United, which was started by a, a Danish uh, aid agency. And I guess you could describe it as a Facebook for, for refugees. So, you know, if I was there, I'd put up my name, Naomi, Steer, age, whatever, three children. I might have, you know, my husband was last seen in Tanzania or where, wherever. And you would hope that your husband might put his, his profile up. Since people had access through our centre to, to the internet, to this site, many hundreds, hundreds of people have actually been re reunited with their families. In fact, the manager of the computer centre was resettled to Canada after he was able to find members of his family. And for me, it's all these sort of unexpected benefits of what was really a, a technology and computer training um, project um, that sort of has made this project very special. Wow, that's a beautiful story. I think the other interesting element of technology and refugees globally is a, is a lot of what I hear about um, contemporary forms of refugee support is focused on how to enable social enterprise and entrepreneurship amongst refugee communities. Um, is that another element of, of projects like that where you provide technology? I, I think that's so important and I think it's an area that UNHCR and other partners will really focus on uh, because if you go into any refugee settlement, everybody has a phone. If you visit Africa, you know that the phone is your little hand computer. You know, farmers get weather reports um, about, you know, drought or, 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 or floods. People use it for banking, personal banking, in a way that we hadn't seen in Australia for, for, for many years. They were far advanced in places like Canada, uh, Kenya. Um, so I think the potential uh, for technology uh, is great, but I still think it's um, underutilised. Um, because of resources and the overwhelming number of, of people uh, and their the need to meet their basic needs. Um, but I do uh, I talk about livelihoods, um, Rachel, you, you mentioned that. 
that I think is one of the most important things, whether it's through technology or or, or other channels. Uh, and it's a very big objective now of UNHCR to ensure that not only do refugees get access to education, but after they they have an education, that there are pathways into jobs. In countries like Uganda, um, there are a number of initiatives happening around um, that. And why that is the case is Uganda is, I guess, one of the great model countries that's had a very open door to refugees. Um, In part, you you ask why um, a number of the government themselves have been refugees. Uh, 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 unfortunately, in the Great Lakes um, uh, region in, in Africa, there's been a lot of conflict over over decades. And you do find many of the, the, the leaders now of countries have experienced what it's like. So they're very kind of open to, to supporting those people who find themselves in that position um, now. Uh, if you're a refugee in Uganda and you come across the border, you get a plot of land, so at least you can have sort of some subsistence um, growth. You can work, you have the legal right to work, you have the legal right to health care. The challenge, however, is there's such a large and poor population in Uganda itself who's competing for those same jobs and, and, and medical support or whatever. And that's where Australia for UNHCR now is playing sort of quite a key role in helping build infrastructure um, that will support both host populations and the refugee population, uh, but also increasingly looking at livelihood projects. Um, If you go to a refugee settlement like Chakatu, another refugee um, uh, uh, situation in Uganda, uh, I'm always amazed at the entrepreneurship of of people there, Uh, beekeeping, honey making, um, uh, fish farming. uh, One of the projects I really love is a recycling uh, project where refugees uh, gather waste um, uh, throughout the, the settlement bring it to a small factory where it's recycled and made into fuel nuggets and then sold back to to refugees. So, again, that fantastic circle of supporting refugees um, uh, in every way but but being a very sustainable project that's also, in this case, uh, protecting the environment. The other really nice thing about that project is that there are a number of young women um, uh, involved in it. It's quite hard physical work working in this factory, but most of them, when I spoke to them, had previously just worked on farms or um, small plots of land, hadn't earned very much. And when they had this opportunity to to, to work in this um, recycling fuel um, uh, um, industry, they all jumped at the chance because they, they got better money. We've just funded a vocational training centre, which is going to open in September, and that's a really fantastic initiative. Again, that will support both um, uh, Ugandans, young Ugandans, and also the youth population of um, Chakatu. It's got the kind of courses that you might expect, um, motor mechanics, hairdressing, um, the hospitality. Uh, there will be a computer technology um, centre um, 
But I'm very pleased when I got my last report, there was a really high enrolment, again, of young women in the motor mechanics course. Um, previous years where I've gone, they've all gone to hairdressing. And that's that's something that you can kind of set up in the back of your, you know, home or whatever, but it doesn't earn very much. Um, and you can really see the shift amongst young women that they're looking to the future and how they can be independent also and looking at the kind of jobs that's going to give them that independence. I think these stories are so important because they illustrate the realities of being a refugee. And I think there's a lot of, I think it's a really misunderstood area. And as you were talking there, I remembered that there was a TED talk held in a refugee camp, wasn't there? About 12 months ago, there was a, right. a huge yes. TED event. Yeah. And I remember at the time, a part of me was so excited that we were hearing stories of individuals in refugee camps and talking about things like entrepreneurship and livelihoods and really illustrating that, you know, being a refugee isn't all about you know, being highly vulnerable and dependent. And there actually is a lot of entrepreneurship involved with that. But I guess the risk is also we don't want to make it look like it's okay to be in a refugee camp and, and things are rosy because you can start a business. Um, mm-hmm. So how do we, I mean, how do we tell stories in a way that is simultaneously empowering for refugees whilst also still communicating that there is a need for intervention? And I, I think that that's a really um, good point that, that you make um, and it's sometimes the, what would you say, the, the double side of the coin that I often see in the people that I, I, I work with. Um, when we say uh, refugees, uh, are, a lot of people are in camps and refugee settlements, but the majority of the world's uh, refugees are actually in urban areas um, and um, uh, because that's where they can, if they're able to access jobs and you know, kids will have greater greater ability to go to school than than often that they will have in in, in settlements. But a, a really good example of what you're saying is I work with a group of women in Kampala and they're urban um, refugees, uh, and they were a group of women who came together initially, six women um, who were highly skilled at various crafts, beading and sewing and whatever. Um, and they had been making all this craft, but they had no market. And so I was visiting. Visiting uh, my colleagues in the office in in Kampala and the livelihood um, officers said, "Look, we've got this great group of women. They've got all this great product, but they've got nowhere to sell it. Can you help us, Naomi?" So we had to think about it at Australia for You and HCR. Um, and what we used to do, if you were a donor to Australia for You and HCR, you would get a magnet made in China. So you could put that on your fridge. I support refugees. So we thought rather than getting this made in China, why don't we work with the women um, about getting them to make some particular item that we could give to donors instead? So we worked with them over probably about nine months and we came up with a design for a particular um, key ring. So if you're a regular donor to Australia for UNHCR, you get this beautifully, personally handcrafted key ring made by one of these women. Uh, it was, wasn't, was again, it wasn't um, a straightforward process. Uh, when, you know, I first started working with them, uh, they'd never worked in businesses um, uh, decisions around price points, for example, you know, they were trying to 
sort of say, well, let's have $10 or $15 for this key ring. And I had to have that discussion and say, this is coming out of my marketing budget. Um, you, you're competing with China. So we need to be competitive if I'm going to order these key rings now from you. So it was a real learning process for, for both um, myself and, and, and our team in Australia and, and, and these women. Well, this group of women now, it's been very successful. We order about 20,000 units of these key rings. Um, uh, the group of women themselves has grown to now 36 women. They support a community of about 1,500 people, a lot of children um, uh, and, and, and other family members, elderly people dependent on them. Um, when I go to talk to them, they tell me how this is life-changing, that a number of them were sleeping literally in the street when I first met them. They've now been able to, to move to um, uh, very basic um, accommodation, but for them a very big difference from where they'd been. They're able to pay their um, uh, school fees for their, uh, for, their, for their children. One of the really wonderful women who's had a very hard life, she ended up buying a uh, small grinding mill and employing two, two women, two refugee women for her. And when I last saw her, she was kind of very excited and said, and now I'm going to buy some land and I'm going to be a landlady. And everybody laughed because six years ago in the, these women's wildest dreams, they would never have thought that they would have been able to achieve this. But that being said, the other side of their life is that they are still extremely vulnerable. This very same, same woman who would turn up in her best dress to meet me because I'm the donor and I'm ordering the key rings, her daughter was trafficked to India um, during this, this period and, and UNHCR, thank heavens, was able to trace her daughter and bring her back, but she was HIV positive by the time she came back and was very, very ill. And for me, Rachel, that was a very big reminder of really as you say, the vulnerability of, of people, um, that is the reality of their everyday existence. Um, at the same time, there they are taking every opportunity to try and advance their life. And I guess for all of us at Australia, for UNHCR, that is the motivation. That's why we do what we what we do. Yeah, yeah, and I, th I think that that's a really important distinction to make. Like for me, it emphasizes that humans will generally make the best of a bad situation. I think that's human nature. It doesn't take away from the fact that they're in a bad situation. Yes. Whether they're able yes. to respond to it and, and empower themselves doesn't change the broader macro context, which still does require intervention. Yes. Okay. So that's an awesome um, description of the work that Australia for UNHCR is doing. The other really exciting part of your work is the private sector support that you've managed to galvanise. Um, a lot of this show is focused on what the role of the private sector is and how we can get the private sector more engaged in social impact. So can you, can you talk about how you've managed to get this level of support from the private sector? Yeah. I would say um, uh, from individuals, um, I wouldn't say it has been easy, but um, overwhelmingly uh, when we talk to people uh, about our work one-on-one -on -one and, and hear these stories and, and see the, the practical difference that 
often a relatively small amount of money can make pe people come on board. The harder task for us has been getting support from corporate Australia. And, and in a way, that's not not surprising. Um, we're a cause around refugees. Um, and I think over, as we know, it's sort of been a very political issue. Um, and it's also, we're asking people to support communities and individuals, often thousands of kilometres uh, away. That, that being said, I think because of the nature of global displacement, we've probably seen over the last couple of years a, a real increase from the corporate sector in particular in wanting to engage in this in a whole whole lot of ways, uh, whether that's uh, uh, about trying to um, uh, bring about a more humane policy within Australia around uh, asylum seekers uh, in very practical ways. There are a whole lot of examples of social enterprises now in Australia Australia, set up by both philanthropists and, and corporates. Um, I know a number of large companies, you know, um, have made space available for refugees trained as baristas to run coffee shops, for example, you know, and it's a small but really effective enterprise. Um, and we are trying to sort of replicate that now and use the skills and brains of, of corporate Australia in our work uh, overseas. Uh, one recent example of that and a very key partnership for us is with um, Teachers Health, uh, which is a large insurance um, organisation providing insurance to people who work in the education and, and health sectors. Um, and they made one of the biggest commitments to us, over half a million dollars over three years to support maternal health projects in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, and their reason for that was because, of course, many of their members in Australia Australia involved in that same work. So they saw this, um, this uh, immediate connection. Uh, earlier in the year, I travelled to DRC with two of their staff who'd been nominated by the whole organisation to go. And again, I don't think in their wildest dreams they ever thought this was their corporate council and head of member services, that they would find themselves in a remote part of um, Congo with with. Uh, me, and, me and colleagues, but I think they would both agree it was life changing for for them, um, and very very much so in the sense when we got up there, it's quite a remote place. It's a small UNHCR office. There was only one hotel that wasn't really um, appropriate. There wasn't electricity or running water, so we all ended up literally bunking in together in the U-owned compound, um, not only sharing rooms, but I had to share a bed with the head of head of member services. We were tucked very neatly on either side. I don't think you'd wish that on all corporate missions, but um, I have to say it was a very different kind of, kind of mission. Uh, but both Penny and Reshma, the two women who came on, were absolutely inspired. And for the organisation, what it meant, while they were there every day, they sent um, their social media messages back, wrote blogs, wrote photos. They actually had this huge following within their organisation. It was really, really um, impressive. Um, for, for Teachers Health, I would say, I think they would say that it's actually been this huge engagement um, uh you know, initiative that staff members see that organisation really living its its values through the partnership with the Australia for UNHCR. I mean, 
We don't know where that partnership will go in the long term, but there's a lot of really fantastic people working for it. Um, and, you know, again, sort of thinking thinking uh, big and thinking ahead, um, how we can use skills of business, how we can use skills of individuals here in helping um, uh, the entre entrepreneurial um, efforts of refugees in places like Uganda or, you know, the the women that I spoke about in Kampala who also dream big um, but need um, some of those skills that, that we have in stacks here. I think that's such an important point and I'm, I'm really glad you raised it. It's a point that I make with a lot of the organisations that I get to work with is view corporate Australia as not just money but capabilities. I think the mistake we often make with private sector partnerships um, in the not-for-profit sector is viewing private sector organisations as just a source of money, which they are, but they're also a source of capabilities, which you in many instances don't have, you know, in a developing country context and which not-for-profits may also not have. So find ways to leverage both the financial and the non-financial resources of the private sector. Yes, and I think UNHCR has some sort of really good recent examples of that globally too. IKEA, for example, uh, is one of UNHCR's really big partners, which has contributed both money and, and expertise. But over a number of years, it's really worked with UNHCR on, on two levels, um, uh, uh, designing new shelter components, uh, which you could expect from IKEA, <laughs> you know, are, are fantastic. But, you know, free free um uh, uh prefab you know quickly constructed um shelter units that can be used very immediately and readily in in emergency situations which is which is what you need i think UNHCR has also um really appreciated um uh IKEA's business know-how, uh, and I think I think it would be true to say it transformed many of the ways that, that UNHCR had done things. Um, and the whole concept of IKEA being quick to market, which you, Rachel, knowing that you've worked with the UN, you could say that the UN globally is not always the, the fleetest of, of, um, of, of movers. Um, but I think UNHCR's own systems really improved by that engagement with, with you know, I, IKEA, one of the best operators in, in their sector. Yeah, definitely. I love that you mentioned IKEA <laughs> when I was um, preparing for this interview. I've got my notes in front of me here and I've just got a note of IKEA because yes. I, I I love I loved the flat pack refugee tent um concept and after I first heard about that I just thought oh, so genius. Like I think I read that the average refugee tent lasts for 6 months. Yeah, that's right. Uh, which is yes. just an enormous amount of waste when you mm -hmm. think about it, given that the average time someone spends in a camp is like something like three years, maybe, uh, yes. probably longer. But the re the IKEA refugee tents generally last two to three years. It's just genius. Yeah. And and look, other examples of sort of that that innovation, and again, another very simple one I've seen in refugee settlements that was brought in by a partner. 
Water is is always a sort of big issue, getting water, access to water, carrying water. You see all the kids, you know, gathered round a water point with all the jerry cans there. They're really heavy. I've carried them. I don't know how the children carry them. Um, and they drag them often along the ground and dirt gets into the, the water. And, of course, that contributes to kind of disease and, and bad health. So one of the corporate partners sort of looking at this, which is how it's happened in refugee, you know, situations, for years and years and years, came up with this really simple solution, which was a barrel on wheels. So it holds the same amount of water. You can still get it under the, the water point and, and get access to the water, but then you wheel it along, you know, really easily on these two little wheels, like a, um, a, a two-wheeled um, suitcase, if you like, but, but in a jerry can shape. And, again, that simple thing sort of has really transformed um, lives for, you know, many young children whose job is to, to carry this incredibly heavy, heavy water. Yeah, wow. Seems so simple, doesn't it? But such a great solution. Um, now, the other point I wanted to ask you about, I understand that you are now doing work with high net worth women in Australia. Um, I find women's philanthropy a really interesting area. So can you comment on that work and what's what's happening there? Yeah, well, I think the starting point for that, Rachel, when we think about our work, 80% of all refugees are women and children. So, you know, I would say um, refugee cause is also a women's cause, you know, very much um, at, at, at the heart of it. And many of our donors, in fact, you know, we get a lot of support sort of a, across the board, all demographics, but you would say that we have a um, slight tilt towards professional women um, who have the, both the sort of opportunity and capacity to, to donate, uh, but also so the interest in how they can can make a make a big difference. So we're just about to launch a, a new initiative um, called Leading Women, which will be looking at how we can engage um, uh, women in Australia more with the cause of refugee women. Um, in a couple of weeks, I'm actually going on a pilot trip, you might say, with with um, good friends of, you know, because we're not quite sure how it's how it's all going to work out, but we're going to Uganda for seven days. Um, and it's part of a leadership pro program um, that um, one of our um, supporters, who's a, a leading development coach in, in Australia, has offered her skills pro bono to support. And a number of women have nominated to go on this trip so they will get um, uh, leadership and development support um, before, during and after. They will have an immersion trip. We will, we're will we meeting actually with the women who make the key rings that I that I spoke about um, and then we're going to one of the refugee settlements um, and the, the purpose of it is really I'm really hoping that through this experience not only will the women be really inspired to to encourage greater support to our work um, through their their networks but also in that direct exchange with the women on the ground in Uganda uh, exactly what we were talking about you know how how women can use their 
skills um, and ideas and uh, entrepreneurship to to support other other women around the around the world um, so it's something that we're really excited about um, and that's just the start of it I might say you know we have lots more ideas but stay tuned I'm so excited I want to come on one of these trips one day that sounds amazing um okay so I think the last question I want to ask you that I think what we've sort of touched on there is the fact that UNHCR Australia is very good at at um, accessing support from high net worth individuals and and the corporate sector um, and I think we're in a phase right now where the not-for-profit sector is really having to reconsider where its funding comes from um, and it's something we talk a lot about here is that you know donations from the general public um peaked in the mid-1980s and they've been declining ever since. Um, government funding is also unpredictable. So the not-for-profit sector is is really undergoing um, quite a lot of disruption at the moment. So I, I know you have a lot of experience in the broader not-for-profit sector. So could we close by commenting on what you make of this disruption that's happening and what advice you would give to other not-for-profits in the sector? I, I I think, as you say, it is a time of a, a, a lot of change. And um, I think, as we say, in our own uh, situation, you know, where we have refugee emergencies, refugee emergencies are also a time of opportunity uh, because you get to do things differently and, you know, open up, you know, new areas that might have been closed before. And I'd say the same for the not-for-profit sector. I don't think we need to be afraid of what's happening, uh, but we actually need to start thinking uh, a little bit differently. One of the the, the areas that a, a, a number of not-for-profits are, are looking at, and it's something that we've talked about um, uh, in, in this discussion, is about um, uh, social uh, ventures. Um, and, you know, I use the example of refugee baristas, there are bakeries, um, uh, and increasingly I think not-for-profits will actually be setting up um, and, and exploring setting up businesses um, that will actually provide the funding towards um, a, a lot of the, the work that we do. That being said, I still think philanthropy is really, really important. I think it's sort of part of the human spirit. And I've always said that if you have the opportunity, um, then you should use that opportunity to, to help others, you know, according to your capacity and, and, and the need. And I still think there's a tremendously uh, generous, strong philanthropic spirit in in, in Australia. Um, it constantly amazes me, you know, that uh, can be I will get letters from clearly elderly people, you know, uh, you know, in the scrawly hand attaching $5. I might get a call from, from a business person, you know, with much, much more. Um, but I do think that 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 is really important too. So I would never want to get to a stage where we saw it as transactional and that everything we did either as donors or not-for-profits was all about metrics. I think that plays a part. I think there's no doubt and, and we're very focused on that in Australia for UNHCR. Um, you have to run like a business. You have to be efficient. You have to show that the funding that 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 you're getting is making a real impact. These are really important things, and I think that's a change in how the not for not for profits report that and tell that story. On the other hand, I always want to encourage that that philanthropic spirit because I think that's a really important part of hu our human nature. 
Yeah, I think that's a, I completely agree. And I think that's a really nice note to finish on. And um, Naomi, thank you so much for being on the show. You've shared so many insights and it's been great to chat to you. Lovely. Thank you, Rachel.